Good evening here in um, Springwood and um, Brisbane, Queensland. It's seven o'clock. It's um, currently ten o'clock in New Zealand. They've just gone to daylight saving. Um, and of course, ten o'clock in the morning for our UK listeners. And um, my name's Jeff Shaw. And my fellow co-host, top left-hand corner, is Julia Choi, who's organised this um, incredible evening of um, how to live off the grid. And um, in the top right-hand corner is Joy Foley, and I'd like to hand it over to my good mate, Julia, to carry on with the show. Good evening. Hello, dear listeners. Good evening. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Today on the news, the United Nations Secretary-General announced that we have to stop waging war on nature. Those are the words he used. And um, my mother and other seniors have spent the last two months putting together uh, presentations and exhibits on how we have to love nature. And the young ones, are many of them are going plastic-free and vegan in order to basically make a change. So we're delighted to, in that vein, have Joy Foley join, join us today. Welcome, Joy, Joy. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here, quite exciting. And uh, Joy, for, for those of you that are just tuning in now and haven't seen our promotion, Joy Foley has, is experienced in living off the grid. This is a picture of her with a black umbrella, a child on the back, and a cattle dog about to walk all the way to the shops in the UK. So this was your time when you were living off the grid in the UK, Joy, is that right? That's right, yeah. Um, I We were there for about 12 years and we renovated an old house in the middle of nowhere up a mountain. Well, it's a small hill really because you don't have big mountains in uh, the UK, Ingleborough, and... Um, so, yeah, it was a three-kilometre walk to the village to do the shopping. And uh, and that's the house that we were working on. That's when we were working on it. The walls around the uh, dry stone walling. So that was one of the skills that we learned while we're there. And, um, yeah, it was quite a fun time. We had a windmill up on the mountain. We um, created a vegetable garden. We actually had to pull rock, bedrock, out of the ground to uh, to build up soil to grow vegetables but then we did really well short growing season though in the uk compared to here <laughs> about three months so you've got to make full use of clutches and uh keeping things warm at both ends of the season so it sounds a bit like it looks a bit like findhorn looks like cold and pretty damp and wet what was it that um motivated you and um your partner to to do this uh, well, it was uh, when we were we were going out. I wasn't actually planning on staying in the UK, and we were we were going out together. And he was planning on moving from London up to the Lake District. And um, in the course of looking for property, we found this one snowy February morning in the mist, and we had to walk up the mountain to to find the house. And we both fell in love with it. And um, and then it was about then that we decided that that we would marry, in fact, because uh, it was a project not for one person, but really for for two. And uh, yeah, so so that house was the beginning of our uh, twenty eight year marriage, effectively. Yeah. 
that's pretty amazing. Did you have any? Did you have any farming experience before that? It sort of feels like you sort of bought the house and and um, you know became a became a, a farming partner. Yeah, so I grew up on a farm in New Zealand. Um, my my family, both sides of my family, were from high country sheep stations in in New Zealand. And I grew up on a small 28-acre farm, a dairy farm. So I grew up milking cows and carrying hay. And um, but my um, my girl's dad was a Londoner, is a Londoner, and um, so for him it was all very new, very new. But for me, the country life was was quite where I was at home, much more at home than in the city. Yeah. And before you sort of fell in love with that place in 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 Scotland, um, sorry, up up in that North Country, what were you doing before that between New Zealand and living off the grid? Yeah, I was quite young then. Um, I had done my nursing training in Dunedin in New Zealand, and I was working as a nurse, um, paediatrics, urology, and um, then I did a bit of work in a, a chemist, a pharmacy. For a while, and then went travelling, and um, and I was actually planning on going to Great Ormond Street and doing my paediatric training there. But I met my partner, fell in love, and had my own kids instead. So I learned firsthand raising my children how to look after kids. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's a different journey, isn't it? Yes, Great Ormond Street is pretty famous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, you've basically, you've moved on quite, you know, you're a member of many organisations now and you're quite proactive in terms of um, working here in Australia with the local Indigenous elders on, and you formed um, a group to, for women healing, healing the earth and learning from the Indigenous elders on how to do that. Um, but between Australia and the UK, I understand you also picked up some permaculture and cooperative skills in Germany itself. Is that right? Yeah. So we were in the UK for 12 years and living off grid with all of what that entails. And uh, then we went to Germany and renovated a house over there. The children went through the German school system. So they were still little when we we moved. And uh, towards the, we were living a pretty normal um life in the system in um, our system that we're now trying to extricate ourselves from if you like and uh, towards the end of my time in Germany um, you know we all shifted and changed the children grew up um, my partner and I sort of drifted apart and um, and so the marriage finished and I was then like, well, what am I going to do now? And um, I, at, at that point in my life, I didn't really even know who I was really, uh, other than all the, the roles I'd been playing, you know, mother, chauffeur, cook, gardener, and so on. Nurse, I was working as a nurse over there too, as a district nurse. And uh, so I, I went through a really radical period of um, a very rapid transformation, if you like. And part of that did involve Thintorn in Scotland that you mentioned before. I uh, went there and did an eco-village living course. I realised that, yeah, I loved the earth, um, that I'd always had a connection to the earth. I'd always lived on the land and feel very at home on the land. 
and so I started looking at community as being uh, an option for the future and I had um, uh, a couple of things happen um, one of them that was a really big key moment in my journey was seeing the photo that Chris Jordan did um, of a baby albatross chick that had died of eating plastic and um, in the moment that I saw that photo uh, my entire life shifted um, just in a fraction of a second so in that moment that I saw that I realized that I was responsible for the death of that bird in that everything is totally interconnected and it was a embodied awareness knowing that just happened and uh, it was huge and so I hit grief and I went through a bit of a process probably eight months of really investigating what was going on in the planet so I started looking at the political systems and the monetary systems and I started looking at the environment what was going on and you know it sort of started with the plastic and then it sort of mushroomed out and it's like opening Pandora's box once you've taken the lid up you can't close it and once you know you can't unknow so I became very acutely aware that my lifestyle which which I thought had been quite good I've always grown organic vegetables in the garden for my kids I've um, always recycled uh, been cautious with water and so on but, um, but it's not enough you know it's just tokenistic um, because the foundation of that lifestyle is um, based on resource thinking that is is why the earth has been so damaged so I just went through this huge process of realizing all of that and realizing that if I was going to be authentic, I couldn't do that any longer. So, um, so I basically dropped out. <laughs> I decided that I wanted to help start a, um, a small community, an intentional community, and I didn't want to use plastic anymore. I helped set up a food cooperative in Munich. There was a group of us got together to do that because we couldn't buy we're vegetarian because that's also part of it. Uh, we couldn't buy food, protein, uh, lentils and beans and things without them being wrapped in plastic because of the laws over there. So we worked out to, uh, how to set up this dry goods food cooperative. Then we started buying from local organic farmers. Half of our group were vegan. The other half were vegetarian. There was very few meat eaters. And, yeah, so we did. We started setting up a... Um, a small community it was called our garden and that was a play on words because a-u-e-r is uh was the name of the little town where we were that sounds like our oh, in our. english and our, yeah our, yeah and then we um we added the english garden to it to to call it our garden so this is just some of uh, what we were doing there that's uh, drying some herbs the last one was some of the little um uh, uh punnets that we gave out and we created a csa scheme as well so we, we developed a food cooperative, we started a community-supported agriculture scheme, and we started the foundation of a community. And we were growing grain by uh, and harvesting by hand, which was great fun and hard work, but very rewarding, uh, using old skills. 
And uh, yeah, that's that's pretty radical. I, I have to admit, I sort of skipped the skip, sickle thing, thinking it was a bit socialist, but I didn't realize you were growing it by hand. I mean, that's pretty uh, yeah. massive. So yeah, that's the kind of things that, that they did in the olden days. How did you did you have someone who knew how to wield one of those things? You know, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I'd learned actually a little bit about how to use one. Um, my The girl's dad had lived in Switzerland for a little while and he learned how to use a scythe while he was there and then he taught me. So we used to cut the grass at the bottom of our garden for the guinea pig and the rabbit when the children were little. So I actually learned how to use a scythe way back when. And, um, yeah, but I uh, – George uh, – George, um, he was the uh, one of the co-founders of the community. Uh, he had seen his father do it in earnest, and had learned from him. So I was picking up the the cut um, grains and bundling them, and he was doing the main cutting. And we had some other helpers, other whoopers that were there helping as well. So other community members. Yeah, the yurt that you just saw, that was my home while I was um, in Germany uh, at the end when I'd stepped into this other system, this other way of being. So I was working um, with gifting then with reciprocity and that's what I'm still doing because uh, I also believe that in order to move forward, we have to shift our attitude towards money and work and um I, I believe that the way forward is actually taking wisdom from the indigenous cultures, which is about reciprocity and sharing. So moving right yeah. away from money. Yeah, Joy, I mean, it sounds like you've really done your in-depth research and um, I might sort of ask you to walk us back through that from the, you know, if we're mm -hmm. just growing our garden vegetables but still living in the system, that's just token and we're still contributing to to, I mean, I think you wrote in your Facebook post war, so I'm really interested in that link between plastic and conflict and um, if you could just take us through some of the things that you said you can't unknow and share them for, yeah. for us. Okay. Well, the one of the things about the war that, um, that happened was the girl's dad was working as a programmer and he got a, a contract um, working for EADS, which is um, a European um, aeronautics division or something. Anyway, they were making, they were building the Eurofighter effectively. And I remember the moment when I realised that, oh, my God, I'm feeding my children blood money. And, um, and that was really big, you know, like the, so that was a very direct link, but there's, there's lots of other links, you know. Um, yeah. Even, even like when we had the food co-op in um, in Munich, it was in an old factory that had previously been um, a lighting factory, I believe. We had our warehouse there, and we we brought our CSA food there, and uh, so we were getting refugees from Syria coming into that space, and um, it was really interesting looking at the dynamic uh, between the people that were living there that were trying to support the refugees and that were really proactive. And these were young children, actually. This this was, um, they were the ones that had lost their family and uh, and then even the babies were coming. So 
So it was very um, interesting to be so uh, really in your face, you know, and um, and part of that. And and you read what's in the papers, and it makes it it doesn't match the reality. The reality is these people are desperate, and they have lost everything, and uh, and they're not out to fleece the system, and they're not out to create um, unrest, you know. So yeah, yeah. There's there's lots of there's lots of little things. One of the things that was really interesting about living in Germany all that time was uh, realizing that all people are people. All people have hearts and love their families. And the because I was working as a district nurse while I was there, a lot of the people that I was looking after were the children, the wartime children, and um, they were still trying to deal with the trauma of what being a wartime child in Germany was and it was horror beyond um, and I, I, I wouldn't even share the stories that they were sharing with me because they're too horrific to imagine you know perhaps one thing I could share that gives you an idea is these children were sworn to secrecy and utmost and absolute secrecy of anything that they had uh, seen or heard that they didn't like because if they weren't totally secret their entire family could be murdered and that was not uncommon so so yeah. this is under the this is the syrian children that you're talking about or the german german oh, no this um, is just going back, going back towards the the german citizens from that had lived through the second world war right and like i came as a new zealander thinking that you know they they'd been the enemies if you like and then I learned that that there are no enemies. There's just people that are trapped in systems that are run by people that are confused. Yeah. Yeah. So you, so you sort of you, do, you took a stand and you left the system and um, you yeah hopped on a bi bicycle, <laughs> went on a vision <laughs> quest. Is that is that about right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a bit. Yeah. A long, long story, but uh, yeah. So I was working at the little um, community uh, in Germany for a while, and then I realised that I was probably going to go somewhere else, but I didn't really know where. And so I decided to, to just my ordinary bike, a city bike, packed myself up, and uh, I so I cycled from just north of Munich um, to Rome. So I went down through Kufstein, Innsbruck, up over the Brenner, uh, which is one of the main passes. In uh, that's the map showing the routes up the Brenner. Um, and I, yeah, cycled down um, past Lake Garda, across the Po flatlands, up over the Apennines, and down into Toscana. So it was a bit of a bit of a journey and. I did that because I didn't, I had six potential projects um, to do. And they're all, I knew at that point that I was going to be something to do with the Peace Valley because I got that name in a dream. I knew it was going to be to do with revegetation and, uh, but I didn't know where. So it was community, healing the earth, healing uh, our relationships with each other. And that's landing in Rome at the end, <laughs> the Vatican. So uh, 
yeah, I got to within a hundred kilometers of, of Rome when I was just physically, emotionally, psychologically, completely at the end, if you like. I was just exhausted. My knee was swollen. My back was aching. I had no energy left. I probably my electrolytes were all haywire because I hadn't been uh, eating and drinking enough for the amount of exercise I was doing. And, uh, and I had, I think, what people call, I've learned since, call a breakdown breakthrough thing happen. So uh, I, um, I just lost it. I was in tears and <laughs> I didn't know anymore. I didn't even know whether I wanted to go to Rome. I had absolutely no idea, like, what was I doing this stupid thing for? And then I dropped into a different state of being that I think you call presence. And... Um, that whole day I floated mostly in and out of that state so time shifted in its uh, way of being colors shifted my experience of everything around me shifted and I could like my eyes aren't so good but I could see in intricate detail the patterns on the wings of a butterfly that were a hundred yards away and it seemed to be moving in slow motion and and that was there's an example of what was happening the whole day and at the end of that day, um, I, I I think I was opening an email. I'd, I'd got to this little town called Toady. Um, and each time I got to an intersection, I just tossed a coin. Where am I going to go? Just, you know, no no agenda at all. Uh, but I got to Toady and I think I was opening my emails and um, something came up. And it was related to Fintorn. There's quite a lot related to Fintorn. It all keeps coming back, pops up again and again. And all of a sudden, I just knew, I knew that I had to come to Australia. I knew it, it, it was like a knowing that it wasn't listening to somebody talk to me. It was like just I knew from the depths of my being that I was meant to go to Australia, that uh, it was my sole purpose, that all of what I'd learned in my life so far was going to serve that purpose and um, basically to get on with it and stop messing That's around. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. You, so you sort of spent, what, six weeks cycling? You've got six projects. You've yeah. been cycling through the whole of Europe. And yeah. then you have a breakthrough and you decide or you know that you've got to go to Australia. Wow. Yeah. That's an so amazing was pretty story. Cool. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> on that day, I wrote to my brother who lives nearby here in Boona and said, hey, I think I'm going to come and we might just do something together. You know, we might do, because he's got land out in the Cambonora Gorge. And uh, and he said, oh, well, maybe you better talk to my friend uh, Susan. And then she wrote back, because remember, we've got a day-night difference here. So I'd send an email and it would arrive and then they sent an email back. And so within 24 hours, I think, I actually had contact with Bundarabi community, which is where this where I am at the moment. Oh. And so, <laughs> so I was actually uh, emailing um, the community from the poolside in Rome. I did actually go the last 100 kilometres, but I was honouring my body. I decided to take the train for that last bit and um, and finish the journey. And, uh, and so, yeah, so then I just packed up and... Uh, uh, yeah, visited my kids. Both my girls are in the UK. Visited them, and then uh, within three months, I was even less. What was no? Within three months, I was in Australia, and two months after that, I was here at Bandarabi. 
it was again a oh, process that's huge. But... yeah <laughs> so jeff's drawn up a picture of the sort of i think the the plaque that is at Bindarabi community and jeff you've been at this community as well i have um and i don't even know whether you got there before joy did actually it'd be interesting because i know you got yeah. there before i did when yeah, did well, you go um at the first um meeting of uh, minds about um, breaking them up into two acre blocks i think um dune's already sort of done that and they've put in a road so and so we came in for a couple of work, uh, working bees putting up um the toilets and showers and the, the kitchen area and we traps up, up the the creek to, to the water source yeah you camped there uh, one one Christmas, you know, <clears throat> five nights. So for down. our international, oh sorry, okay, yeah. So you stayed there five nights. Uh, I, one time there, we went um, usually go for the weekend, but this was a five night one just over the Christmas New Year period. You know? mm. Bloody amazing! So energy. for our inter it is, isn't it? I um for our international listeners, uh, Binda Rabi community is um I think it's south of Queensland, just over the border. There's some pictures of it. There's a beautiful, beautiful mountain which has amazing spring water, and um, uh, a geologist discovered it and bought I think 300 acres and then apportioned a part of it to share with community. He and his um, partner had already set up um, Kenmore Transition Town, so they're already for years looking at becoming more um, sustainable on a sort of civilian level, and um, they then transformed this this wild bushland into um, a local eco community where people can just camp, or then they can just come and build um, in and uh, grow their own food and um, try and create a community that lives sustainably and in respect with um there's the mountain it's amazing wherever you are around that property the mountains there so joy when so Brenda Rabi obviously called you in in the dream time and then did you actually have any money because before that you were in germany oh. in a cooperative and you were working on exchange how on earth did you manage to get get over so, here i thought the australians don't let just anybody come here if they don't have money <laughs> Well, because I'm a New Zealander, I was able to come in and, and live here. So I don't get, um, I get support through Medicare, but that's it, as, um, as just being a New Zealander that's allowed to reside here. Uh, mm. So I had, because of that, I was able to come in. Uh, and I did have some, some money um, from when, the, uh, when our marriage ended, and I invested that in this journey. And that's actually quite interesting because we go back to Findhorn now um, as to why it, 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 this is really key, actually. And I didn't realize it until I was here. So while mm -hmm. I was doing the Eco Village Living course in Findhorn in 2015, a young uh, man from Australia came up to me and gave me a black cockatoo feather. Oh. And I just looked at it. At that point, I said uh, I had no idea I was leaving Germany. I thought I was going to be there forever. And he gave it to me and I looked at it and I said, well, that's a real honour, my goodness, wow. But I don't even know what a black cockatoo is. And I've got nothing to do with Australia. My brothers live there, but <laughs> no more than that. And I kept it as this really honoured gift. And then um, it, it's quite a fun story. Well, it's, yeah, my while I was at 
the course, actually, my my father, um, he passed, and this wasn't the fun bit. This was the very sad bit, and so I wasn't able to get back for the funeral. But they held a memorial service, like um, at the end of that year. So I planned to go to that, and in the course of what I was doing, I knew I didn't want to fly much anymore. So you're getting some of the view of the camp there <laughs> um, as it, yeah, got blown over and then got rebuilt. Anyway, uh, yeah, so so I ended up, um, to cut a long story short, at uh, a friend's place. I, w I went to various countries in one flight because I had to go from, Germany to New Zealand to my dad's memorial service and I thought rather than doing lots of uh, either never seeing people again I'd do one flight but I'd stop at different countries while I was in Canada I was caught, sort of pulled to a little stand at um, it was an art, artisan market and this lady made jewelry so I kept going to it it's like no I don't want to buy jewelry anyway she said, I'm going to give you a reading. And I said, oh, God, I don't do stuff like that. And <laughs> so uh, then she said, well, I see that you're going to go to your wild woman soul and there's a large parrot. So I still didn't know there was a connection at that point between a parrot and a cockatoo. I had no idea. I'd never even looked up what a cockatoo was. And then I did my vision quest, it sent me here. And then I land at Bandarabi and we have flocks of black cockatoos that fly around. And uh, another synchronicity brought me to meet uh, Kylie uh, Githable, who is, um, her totem is the black cockatoo. And coincidentally, she ended up coming here and, um, and grounding me to this place and 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 um uh and and brought me into custodianship of this particular piece of land here so uh the synchronicities were huge <laughs> so uh, somebody said to me, somebody said you know you've just been called back you're supposed to be here and it's like well i'm just following what feels right and it feels very right yeah very mm. very right and i'm so grateful to to kylie um and her mum's been here now <laughs> auntie gloria's been here auntie sonia's been here um it's beautiful really beautiful that's a really interesting term that you use the um auntie carly grounding you in this land because obviously a lot of us do feel like you know we know that we this is not originally our home and we don't you know we're here because of the economics and the system but it's you know we're not the first settlers and um, mm. I remember we once went to um, meeting the Indigenous and learning about their spirituality up near Mount Warning and um, one of the young ones greeted us and with the, one of the elders and when he said that we welcome you, there was just this collective sigh that went through the audience because I think unconsciously we kind of all knew that <laughs> You know, we didn't grow up here, so well, we might have gone here, but, you know, we are, we're not the first settlers, so that had been weighing. And when they said, you're welcome here, this is our home, This our home is your home now, it was just like this huge relief 
unconscious mm. that we've unconsciously been carrying that burden of being outsiders here. So was that when you said you, she went through a grounding ceremony, what did that entail? What was the significance of it for her to do that for you? I think you'd have to ask her that. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, she just said, I'm going to ground you. And you said, okay, fine, go ahead. <laughs> so, um, I'd actually just invited her to come to a weaving weekend and it um, it turned out to be slightly more than that and she held the most beautiful ceremony. There was quite a, a small group of people and um, she held a smoking ceremony and... Um, had a special message for everybody that was there. It was a very, very profound and deep and and beautiful experience. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. Apparently it was very important because later I um I got to know through the Indigenous burning, I got to know um I was at a workshop when I was up at Maryvale at um a bunny festival and I got to know Auntie Carly who is a gullible elder and then um, so when I landed on this ground I I had a sense that there was something special about it and so I actually invited the elders to come um, to have a look around and see what they thought and uh, they um, realized that this particular part of this land is actually an ancient uh, woman's place, woman's site. Oh. So where I where I put my camp, unknowingly, um, is actually part of this special woman's place, and so it was really important because of that to have that special welcome ceremony from Kylie, who's um, a very important member of the family. Uh, because not anybody can live on one of these special sites. You've you've got to be welcomed. And even at that time, it wasn't conscious that it was important. Do you know what I mean? But it was we. It was known. It, it was really important. So um, so now, what's really new is in the last few months, um, we've kind of been sitting with the thought that Peace Valley is now going to be a woman's only space. So to honour that ancient and um, important uh, space that this is, um, Auntie says it's called Budurum. And Budurum um, is giveable and it means that this place is sacred to woman. And so for that reason, um, sort of as of this last week, in fact, we've made the decision to permanently keep this as a woman's only space it's been kind of on the edge of it for the last mm. uh, since january since we realized yeah. what it was yeah but now it makes total sense decided. yeah it makes total yeah. sense because i mean i've visited your place as well and um it's kind of on a bit of a slope and there's this there's these rocks and this creek water running downhill and then you've built this sort of spiral lavender in the round garden. So, yeah, I can I can see. Okay, so that, uh, what's happened to the people who invested and, and bought two acres? What's the story there? Are they, are they getting chucked out, I think? <laughs> no, 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 it's just me. Just This is one part of it. 
it's not the whole community. So just one part of it is uh, is a woman's space, uh, not all of it. And that's another thing back to the less um, spiritual side of it, but more to the uh, environmental side of it. As part of that stepping away from the money system, I have uh, arranged with Bandarabi, I'm not a shareholder. So this project that's here um, has a contract with the community. And uh, so basically what that means is I don't own land because I can't own land because humans cannot own the earth, the earth owns us. And so by living, if I wanna live that truly, I need to not own land. That includes not buying a share. So that's part of my trying to be as authentic as I can be to the values that I've got. Um, while still being held in the system that's still, you know, there. Yeah. I just thought I'd yeah, throw well, that in. That's, that's, you know, that's pretty huge. I mean, I think the original model was that people would um, get two hectares and they'd invest a certain amount and then mm. um, build something as long as they kept to the principles and were sustainable and community-based, etc. So well done for to the community for um, being flexible and... Um, able to embrace new paradigms and that's what you know joy that's what you're all about and why we've invited you in because it's not just about dreaming the new dream which is our show but also living the dream that you've got so when i visited you you know i was introduced to <laughs> joy is basically <laughs> setting up what she calls the peace valley and she's repurposed she hasn't used anything she hasn't bought anything to build her home she's just basically repurposed things <laughs> And everyone was just sort of seeing how that was working. What was that like for you, you know, to go into the bush, which is, you know, very hot here, <laughs> lots of ants and um, very dry as well. And then to try and make a home and, and a camp there. How did you go about that? What, what, what was the um, easy bit and what was the hard bit? Well, what, I don't know. I started out with a tent and you saw the picture before. Um, it was just as that cyclone. I think it was, um, I can't remember what it was called. Uh, and Debbie, that's right, Cyclone Debbie. And I was in a tent and I'd been here about two weeks. <laughs> so I nearly got flooded out. So that was quite exciting. Uh, I think what was hard was because I'd come from Europe, I'd lived in Europe for 30 years and I didn't understand there was a couple, I was a bit naive. I didn't understand how large Australia was, the distances between um, settlements. And I didn't understand the extremes of the weather because I'd been living in a relatively mild European climate by comparison to Australia. So um, I came here naively thinking that there'd be a huge population, same as Europe, that there'd be loads of people come. And this, the wind blew my camp over, you see. <laughs> That was after, uh, about after a year or, no, when was it, 2018, um, we got like a little whirly thing that came and picked up my camp, turned it upside down, and um, I had to start again. So that was quite exciting. And the yurts at the back, I live in the yurt. Uh, uh, yeah, and it's all recycled, upcycled. Uh, the second build has taken a lot longer than the first build because I didn't have quite the same energy to put to it. But... Um, I've got a, a big open plan area so that people can really experience being in nature, but yet be safe uh, from 
the sun and to feel at home. And yeah, it's all recycled, upcycled stuff. I got pallets from a local market that I got quite cheap and then put them together and um, yeah, there's some things I bought, but yeah, not like new, but not too much. Most of it's recycled. But again, it's still trying to live and, and I'm sort of trying to not be too extreme because like I went plastic free, as you know, for a year in Germany and that was quite an adventure because I, I did go cold turkey as soon as I realized what was happening, that I had to stop using plastic, I just stopped using plastic. So that affected my diet because I couldn't buy half the food I was needing. And that's why we did the food co-op. And then I started having to buy secondhand clothing because all, almost all clothing is plastic. You know, it's, when you start to look at the bigger picture, it's massive. So, uh, yeah, I had a year where at the end of the year I had not used any new plastic at all. And I had at the end of the year a rubbish bag that was just this full of things that I'd bought the year previously. Yeah. That's amazing. So let's let's talk about the plastic food because we've got the food. You've covered that. The clothes. Yeah, no polyester, so cotton. What about like yeah, banking and transport? I mean, you know, we use plastic all the time to pay. Exactly. Exactly. It's just madness, isn't it? It's everywhere. I couldn't believe that they were putting plastic into the money as well. It's like, yeah. hey guys, you're starting to use fracking and and other really really dodgy technologies that actually cost more to extract the stuff than it does to make a profit. They wouldn't be able to do it if they weren't getting money from governments to do it. And yet they're still putting the stuff into our money. They, they st like, why? Why? You know, it's madness. It's absolute madness. Um, I did choose within that year of Plastic Free to keep using my computer and my telephone because I knew and to have lighting because that's all plastic too, you know. But... Everything else, I just got it out of my life completely. And coming to Australia, I had to, um, this is where I started from, I had to not be quite so strict with my ideals because um, to get to the nearest really good farmer's market, that's Mullumbimby. And for me, it's a 360-kilometre round drive. So I have to choose between the things that I can't grow myself, getting them nearby in Boona um, or Warwick, which is an hour's drive, roughly, not quite an hour to Boona, a bit over an hour to Warwick, um, and tolerate some plastic. Or do this massive drive down to Mullum to get really beautiful organic farmers stuff, but use all that petrol and wear and tear on the car. So I've had to do a little bit of juggling and but my aim is to go back to being completely plastic-free. So that means we're probably going to have a cow here at some point. A couple of the other um, community members, shareholders, uh, also want a cow. So we'll have milk products on hand. We're growing our own vegetables. We've got a wonderful variety of fruits and um, unusual tropical and subtropical fruits. Um, one of the members is very keen on on these things and has been really, really busy planting lots and lots of orchards. And one of the great things of Bandarabi is we've got uh, temperate, uh, the possibility of growing temperate things, but also growing tropical things with some care. So we can actually, as we get more established, have food 
um, abundance the whole year round on this one piece of land, which is pretty awesome. It's to do with the heights. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. The other thing I've had to do thinking about it is um, because of the drought, I had to protect the garden. And um, so I had to put, I had to put um, shade cloth on the garden, which is more plastic. And um, it just really, it doesn't do me any good. Aha. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> oh, thanks, Jeff. So yeah, I, um, I run the project here on a gift economy basis. And um, again, that's the same, it's about the reciprocity. And it allows people to come and experience being in the bush and reconnecting to nature, um, even if they haven't got a, a huge bank account. Often retreats in the bush are things that only the well-to-do can afford because they can fund quite um, big money. And I think it's really, really important that we open the space for everybody to reconnect to nature. So one of the things that I do here is uh, we start our day with meditation and uh, check-in. And I try to hold a kind of attitude of mindfulness here at Peace Valley so that we are we're mindful of ourselves in terms of self-care and then mindful of each other. So it's not about a work ethic. It's more about what is needed here. You know, um, some people come and they really need rest. So they rest. If they want to just sleep for two or three days. They sleep for two or three days. And other people come and they really need to work and they need to get out there with an axe and be chopping you know, chopping wood or a saw, collecting firewood. Um, so we really listen. Uh, that's important, this deep listening. Uh, I think a beautiful elder, uh, Mary Rose, I can't remember her last name, sorry, disrespect there, um, talks of Dadiri, and Dadiri is so important, the deep listening and it informs uh, everything. If, if one can be in the space of deep listening, then everything can flow from that space. So that's the uh, sort of one of the underlying principles. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's, um, you know, you, you had that moment when you sort of had the breakdown and then the breakthrough and um, everything was clear and you were just in that space where you just knew and I think many of us spent so much time trying to do what is expected of us or trying out things that we think will help but if we just knew and if we could just listen and learn to be present um, and um, then I think that will help everyone waste, waste less time actually um, doing the stuff that's not so important and focus on what's important. Mm. Slowing down. Because it's interesting, as we slow down, uh, we become more productive. It's it's like a paradox. 
by being more present, everything has a tendency to flow and action tends to be more right action rather than headless chicken stuff. I do plenty mm. of headless chicken stuff. <laughs> Quite a bit of it lately. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you're human. <laughs> oh, totally. Totally. <laughs> totally but, human. But that actually is, is an interesting question because, um, you know, when I talk to Australians um, who who have been to school with um the first settlers and indigenous they kind of say that they're on, on a different kind of time time to to us westerners and and when it comes to you know doing things together it's a bit hard because they're on a different different sort of time sensation do you do you find that or do you find that you can grace that you can bridge that quite easily because you've got that sort of deep listening and presence patience I think it's growing in me, you know. Uh, I didn't, I, I didn't, I, I used to be, and I can still be very busy, like the last weeks we've been very, very busy uh, working um, with uh, preparing for a cultural burn here and, and a lot of work. But in terms of the time, I'm, I'm getting better at, at being with um, and at the waiting for the time, for the right time. Auntie Gloria's got a beautiful thing that she said, it will be done right. At, now, how did she word it exactly? It'll be done at the right time in the right way. And we just wait. We wait until it's the right time. And then it happens. It just, it flows, whatever that mm. might be. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned um, fire sticks and fire law. Binderabi obviously mm -hmm. was also affected by the bushfires. So you know, sort of, you're, you've had personal experience of um, the the power of fire, bushfire down locally, and, and now working with the locals. Can you um, share some of that, your insights into that, or experiences, please? Yeah, certainly. Uh, last year, um, just before Christmas, we had fires at three different sites and uh, two of them came to within just a few kilometres of Bindarabi and it got quite scary. I, I actually packed up and left a couple of times. Um, we weren't asked to leave, but it just the wind was predicted to come up and it was looking really scary So and the smoke was huge, so I just left. <laughs> uh, and we'd had the two years of drought, obviously, so everything was tinder dry. And then we got the rain at Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, that stopped the fires, which was beautiful. So, yes, I have experienced the bushfires and it was um, sitting with that constant anxiety was, was pretty hard. Is, is it going to come? How fast is it coming? You know, maybe it's not going to come. The wind's going to go the other way. And we sat with that for three months. So it was quite a, a, a very, a very difficult time. And... So I actually got to know Auntie Carly through the fire sticks people. I, I went to Victor Stephenson's workshop up um, uh, up in Maryvale. In fact, my brother had him uh, do a workshop on his property over in the Cambanora Gorge. So I got to hear him talk twice, uh, actually three times thinking about it. And this photo here is, um, is Victor at front and young Rob at the back. And young Rob has been working uh, with Victor, learning from him for about 10 years. And we just did a, a cultural burn here at Bandarabi, uh, quite a large burn. And young Rob uh, was, if you like, the conductor of the burn. 
he led it and and held the space um, for it. We had assistance. Auntie Carly was here, and uh, we had assistance from the Githerball Rangers as well. And it was the most magical day because the cultural burn, it's cool, and you can walk with it. In fact, um, we did a smaller burn earlier with Auntie, and we were doing it, and we were in barefoot. We it was a ceremonial burn. And so we were we were tending the fire barefoot, and it is perfectly safe to do that because it is cool. The minute the flame's gone, and the flame's usually only about this high, might get about this high, but it stays really low. And it just moves across the ground, clears the ground, and you can walk with it and walk onto the the ground immediately afterwards. It, it's very beautiful to be part of. The bigger burn we just did with um, young Rob was a little bit more tricky because it was an area that has not been burnt for a long, long time. And because of the drought, there's a lot of dead wood. So there was, there was probably in places maybe half a metre high of, um, of debris on the ground. So it did burn in places a little bit hotter than, than one would have liked. But from now on, it will be a true cool burn. Like we've got rid of, and that's also made it safer. So if a bushfire comes through, uh, we're going to be safe from that side because there isn't the same debris there. Yeah, and all the wild food will come back and, and the creatures are all there already. The the birds are all back. The insects never went away. They just climbed up the trees and waited and then came back down again. I mean, we didn't lose anything. A bit of sleepless nights <laughs> watching the, the smouldering logs, but, yeah. So just for our um, international listen listeners, the idea of a cultural burn is that, you know, we, we generally get bushfires here in Australia when it gets really hot, like sort of over 30 degrees for like, you know, two months at end. And in summer, then the fires basically just light themselves and it goes out of control. Whereas with the controlled burn or the cultural burn, the Indigenous uh, peoples have had tradition of doing burns during winter when it's cooler right and um to clear the land so that in summer it doesn't burn as much is that is that correct yeah actually it's a little bit of a slightly correct but slightly not so what i understand and i've got a very small amount of knowledge very small um is that the burning is is not about um hazard reduction the burning is about healing country and healing the people that live on the country. And oh. it's done totally holistic way. It's done about when a certain um, plant is in flower, when the wind is in a certain direction, when there's a certain humidity uh, and different types of country, whether it's ironbark country or whatever, um, sclerophyll, wet sclerophyll, what, each type of country has a different time to be burned. and it's not related to the calendar. It's related to, you know, which animals have got young. And it, it, it's, it, it encompasses all of it, uh, the weather. Okay. And, and it's part of, um, like, the, it's white smoke. It makes a white smoke, which is like a healing smoke that goes right up into the canopy. So it takes away the sickness out of the trees takes away the invasive weeds and so then you get a healthy forest and then so you increase your wildlife and you increase the native um, foods and the native grasses. So it's a totally holistic land management system that's been used for thousands of years 
and um, the idea of hazard reduction is purely because since colonial times the traditional method of farming the land has been stopped and there's been a build-up of debris and the forests have got sick so we wouldn't be having yeah, I think Jeff's trying to get the uh, video up. But thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, I really didn't know that. I just thought it was um, hazard management. Sorry. So it's kind of got a transformative, transformative yeah. function. That's wonderful. Yeah. Oh, Let's go to uh, just over two minutes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hi, my name is Victor Stevenson. I'm an Indigenous fire practitioner from North Queensland. It's a real shame to see the devastation of those wildfires across the Australian landscape. And it is time for people and communities to start listening to a new way to go back a step. And that is to tap into our Indigenous knowledge system that has managed this landscape for thousands of years. It is so important that people are not deprived from this knowledge system any longer and that we are working with communities, black, white, to start looking after our landscape into the future. Because we can't afford to lose any more animals, to destroy the trees, destroy our environment, our waters. We must protect them for our children's future. And we owe it to them. Aboriginal fire management is very complex and there's a lot of layers of knowledge and information. But, but it's, it's all based on the really cool burn, which is low in intensity. Hot fires that we often see in the wildfires, and even hot fires we often see with hazard reduction burning, it's not good for the country. So the fire is an application to get rid of the weeds and the invasive grasses. We burn to promote the right vegetation, and that's what makes it different to hazard reduction. When you burn it at the right time, grass come up everywhere. Look, I see. Climate change is above us, and it's not all doom and gloom. We must look for positives, getting out on country, being practical, and starting to get the solutions happening today. If we start looking after the land with fire the right way today, then in generations to come, we may see beautiful big trees again. We might see the land clean and animals coming back. We might see a diversity of plants and healthy ecosystems. But that won't come with a lot of hard work and open-mindedness to revive this knowledge system and work together to look after our country. There you go. All good? All good. Okay, so um, you mentioned that um, you twined with um, a Greek community, Twin. yeah? Yeah. Yeah, yes. Now, we uh, got uh, accepted for a small grant through the Global Eco Village Network and it's about twinning projects around the world. And so Coronagus Arc uh, is a small project in Greece and they're a little bit further along than, than I am, but we hold a lot of very, very similar values and ideas. And so what we're doing currently is we're kind of meeting weekly and we're swapping some of the tools and things that we use. 
So Maria at Corogan's uh, Arc, she's done, doing a lot with circle dance and song and music and art, as well as permaculture and, um, uh, you know, a healthy land management stuff. And so we're kind of swapping some of these things. And I've I've given her some of the, the meditative practices that I use here. And in fact, tomorrow we're doing a joint, uh, a very small uh, joint event with some people in place here at Peace Valley and some people online. And Maria's going to lead. It's a full moon uh, thing that we're doing. So Maria's coming in. She's going to lead song and dance. We're going to have a meal and then we're going to do a full moon ceremony together. And so that's quite fun. It's uh, been really valuable. And through the twinning, that little bit of money that we got, I've been able to get a professional Zoom um, account. So I'm offering quite a few things online now. Um, currently, there's a birdsong meditation that I'm doing on Thursday mornings that people, it's, it's just all gift, you know, because everything I do is about giving and reciprocity. So I, I just offer that. And I'm also doing a uh, honoring circle with a group of people from around the world that are based uh, or have come out of the U Lab with Otto Sharma. And uh, so we just do this also once a week. And I'm now going to extend that. So the honoring circle is going to be open for the public as well and at a time where Europeans can join us. And so that's about deep listening again. It's really about all of everything's about deep listening. <laughs> Once we can listen deeply to ourselves and to Mother Earth and to all the other creatures, then um, I think we can we can move forward with right action. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that sounds um, remarkable. And um, I love the quotes that you use about the peace and how important it is to develop peace within ourselves and. So I understand you're setting up the Peace Valley. So if people want to connect with you, you're saying you're doing the Zoom. We've got different links that Jeff's putting up here. But what is the best way for them to get in touch with you directly if they want to sort of volunteer or um, come and um, become a part of one of your groups, either with the uh, working with the Women's Healing Group or the, the Peace Retreat or um, any of the other projects that you've mentioned today? Okay. Okay. Uh, Either um, email, which is, um, or through Messenger, through Facebook, Facebook Messenger through the page of Peace Valley. Um, email, which is also peacevalleyau at gmail.com. Or through the website, there's a form, a contact form there as well. So any of those will get to me. Phone is not a good way because I'm in the bush. I'm off grid. We have no phone reception here. So I do get calls only if I've got my Wi-Fi running through Wi-Fi um, wi calling. So I tend to tell people not to use the phone, to use email preferably or Messenger. Yeah. And, um, and I welcome people. Like I say, now it's woman only. So I'll be welcoming um, women to come and stay as long as they want. They can come for a day or two or come for longer. I think the longest guest I've had so far was here for three months, just short of three months. Uh, a lot of people come for one week to a month. I, I think what people need really is to have more than a week because they really need a week to recover, a week to realize um, that they need to come down and relax 
and and recover a little bit and then they can start to feel better but it's completely open and i just ask that people um uh, think about contributing in some way because obviously there are still costs much as i'd love to be doing it without uh, money at all it uh, doesn't quite work like that because there are background costs um, like this internet for instance and running the vehicle and uh, so on so i just ask if people would like to donate in terms of giving forward so that someone else can come if they're well off if they donate more than they you know than others so that they can sponsor somebody else coming um but if people haven't got uh, money to donate um and they want to be here they are welcome to uh i i kind of suggest that people minimally cover the costs of their food uh but anything is welcome and uh I've had everything from one lady gave me, she was really sweet. She gave me $300 for helping her plant some trees. And then I had another lady come and stay for several days. And her way of saying thank you was a jar of jam, which was really lovely. And that was really good for me, actually, because that really helped me truly embody that the gifting is truly you give with no expectation at all. Because as soon as there's an expectation, it's no longer gift. It's about barter, and then you're back. You you suck straight back into the the money thinking. Yeah, the the power the, the power dynamic starts to come in. So gift is good. Reciprocity. Yeah, and I think it. Yeah, I think it's, it'd be a good way to practice um, practice. Um, going away from that sort of tied barter system or that tied payment or exchange system just to uh, I think the trust is what a lot of us haven't learned yet to really deep deeply jump in and know that we can be provided for by the universe and be that through other people or situations and landscapes I guess the last question I want to ask you you know back to the cockatoo is you know the animals the totems so have you got daily visitors have you got friends have you made friends with some of the birds or the animals in peace valley have they sort of accepted you as their neighbor now as part of their family oh definitely definitely um they're coming back after the drought as well we we did have uh dramatically reduced numbers um of uh all the creatures really uh, but now they're coming back. So I've got a lovely little family of wallabies. She was uh, she gave birth to twins, and they keep coming back. So they, I, I would say, they're my good friends. <laughs> the, the twins are young adults now, uh, and the glossy blacks come across quite regularly. The I haven't seen the yellowtail uh, cockatoos for a while, but I know they're there. I can hear them up in the forest, um, and we've got about 150 different bird varieties in this piece of land apparently in the Karela forest so it really is a bird watcher's paradise and we've got goannas and we've got echidnas and uh, all sorts all sorts yep and it's beautiful it's paradise i can't believe that i'm living in such beautiful place it's incredible <laughs> i'm very 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 spoiled right, it's very to... special yep good to have to so the overarching is Birubandi, which is where the communities come together and they've all got their two acres. Yeah, and they've all paid their sixty-five thousand bucks. And then you've got the common area for camping and so forth. So 
each one of those are professional or the like Crystal um, Waters or at Findhorn where people have come in and they've set themselves up to bring their knowledge, their wisdom and their lifestyle to the community. So that's the overreaching aspect to it. So Peace Valley, just to not add any confusion, that's your project that's been, you've been allocated generous two acres or something to run your your yeah your lifestyle am i on the same is that what we're talking about here um yes and no there's a wonderful german word yein which means yes and no in one word um so i peace valley is actually situated on the common land so i don't i don't sit on a block so the blocks at Bandarabi have been pre-allocated in terms of position and they have got building regs and fire regs um a planning permission all been done in advance and they so there's particular places that have you know fire trails uh, above and below and water to the blocks and so on so when people come in and buy a share they uh, choose one of these designated blocks. Sure. So are yeah. you in the, open, the big open area where you go up towards the dam? No, uh, at the back of the campground. Okay. Um, heading back towards the gate from the campground, from the entry gate. Yeah, where the, right. there's some white stones on the road, you might remember. But it's just in so length. Because you're a man, you didn't find it because it's secret women's business, remember? <laughs> you weren't drawn to it. <laughs> Mate, mate, I went to a place up in Glasshouse Mountains and they told me, I just drove in and they said, what are you doing here? It's women's business. I said, no, I just felt intuitively I had to come here. Oh, is that right? Well, who's in the back of your car? Well, I introduced him. So he said he was an Aborigine fella. And so the other lady said she was a New Zealand Mary. Oh, welcome onto the property. You can come. You're okay, fella. Just don't go anywhere near the birthing tree. Well, it's about 10,000 trees there. <laughs> but, so I just had to stay where I was. <clears throat> it's rooted. <laughs> That's good. They made us a cup of tea. It was really lovely. That was really great. And then they invited um, Daryl and myself and Glennis to come back um, a couple of weeks later for a, a woman's, um, well, it was a woman's day, eh? So they, they showed you how they make the bush tucker and how they do the herbs and medicines and stuff. It was really just impulsive, isn't it? It's just somehow or another, you intuitively, if you just let go of the handbook and just go on a little ticky tour, you, it's quite surprising where you just turn up, isn't it? Yeah, I think also that, um, well, what I'm finding is that there is a sense um, in the... Uh, indigenous people I've met, they can sense immediately if one is authentic and coming from the heart. And um, so you will not be accepted in that manner if you're not, um, I don't know, I can't say a good person, but you know what I mean? <laughs> There's a there's a there's an awareness of people that are really real and coming from a space of respect and love for country and for their fellow humans. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, it does. I mean, the most profound um, moment I had in in my life was four years ago at Toowoomba, and I met Artie Robin, and I um, she does all Welcome to Country for the the council and other organisations. And anyway, um, I said, "Would you like to go to dinner?" And it's my shout, and so we're walking down um, Margaret Street, Ruthven Street, and then we turned around the corner to go to this restaurant and um these um japanese girls went past talking japanese and she stopped and had a look and then shortly afterwards these three indian students went past talking in their in their language and again she stopped and listened anyway then i was quite perplexed by it but then we i opened the door and i let her into this restaurant and then we sat down and then she got really tearful yeah, and then she told me her story. Her story was that they grew up on a rubbish tip up at um, Cloncurry and being Aborigines, when they came to town, they weren't allowed to speak their language. So for her to walk down to Toowoomba and find these two groups of people coming through speaking Japanese and Hindi, and she wasn't allowed to speak her dialect of Aborigine, but the tears was that when she was a child, she never, ever thought that she'd be allowed into a restaurant, let alone sitting with a white man. That was really profound, eh? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's bloody yeah. amazing. And so their house, you know, was dad used to go onto the tip and anything that was dumped, like tin and stuff, and so they lived in this corrugated, you know, thing that dad put together and... They found a um, bathtub and so they were able to have a bath, but um, there's no running water. Yeah, really profound. There you really go. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah. just moving the subject along, money. So really at the end of the day, <laughs> you, <coughs> this utopic position of, living in this lifestyle where money's an effort to less, you. Less um, important, but it still is important, sadly. <laughs> and then finding your husband getting so-called blood money, you think, oh, God, my gosh. So that was pretty profound. But I have put my mind on this for, for many years to find out what would you replace what we've just currently got. And... Um, about 20 years ago, I read a series of books and I got prompted to read them again. So I've actually gone and purchased them and they arrived last week. And the answers to my question that I'm asking you is that I'm actually going to give you the answer. And that is, these books were written about a, a group of eight Americans who went into India, Nepal, Himalayas, went into Persia, went into China. And the books are called The Life and Teachings of the Masters of the Far East. Beautiful. And it goes into some really great depth where these individuals have raised their energy and their vibration. And it's all done based on love and the fact that each and every one of them is the living Christ. And they're using the Christ energy and the principles behind it. So it's quite profound because they go on and they talk about John the Baptist and how Jesus was taught by these masters. And, and these eight Americans are taught about and showing 
in real terms, how you can walk across water, how to manifest food, how to levitate, how to teleport, and a situation occurred where they said, oh, we're going to have to get some money. And the guy just put his hand out. There's the money in his hand. Um, and then this, the mother, and these these individuals are over 150 years old. But when they said, oh, mum's coming, mum, mum's 750-something years old, and so she manifests and the light lights up this whole room where there's no electric light in the village, her light, her presence, yeah? And then she just manifests this humongous big bowl and uh, she just says, yeah, and she gets these two light workers, if you want to call it such, to stand either side. And they just get these small eating bowls and, and she just gets a ladle, pulls it in there and gives them all this vegetable soup. And this guy goes over there looking in the bowl, and it's, it's empty. But every time she goes and gets a ladle, it's filled with bloody highly nutritional vegetable soup. Now, you tell me, that seems to be where we've got to go. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that sounds pretty wonderful. It would be, I'd, I would say, that would be a great way to go. Absolutely. And the key to it yeah. is to raise the vibration so that, before you make the choice to pass, you know, moving across into the other realm, you then trans transmute all your cells so that you bring the body with you. Yeah. And if you can do that, then it allows you then to manifest back into this reality. If you haven't got the gist of that doing that and you move out of your body, then you'll have to come back to go through the incarnation process to take that body because once you slip out of the body the only people who can see you is those people who raise their vibration to see you it's a bit like um the celestine prophecies you know where the, there's a story involved in that where they raise their vibration so that's really essentially i sense to be the, both the question and answer and that is to raise your vibration and that's obviously um eating the right foods that are highly vibrational mm. Yeah, and I think there's, like, yes, there's that sort of really spiritual, esoteric side to that, but there is also um, uh, the, the the physical side. If you're eating healthy food, you're going to have a healthy body, and if, you, if you're not eating um, meat of animals that have been killed in a horrible way, you're not going to absorb the energy of the fear of that creature when into your body. So... I can see that there's a there's definitely a correlation there, and uh, yeah, I know that since I've been a vegetarian, I have um, there's been a shift in my awareness, so that I'm aware of the animals and the plants and the trees as being part of my family which I wasn't aware of before I was vegetarian. And I don't know whether there's a link there, but I wouldn't be surprised if there is. Uh, so, and another interesting thing that I'll just add as a little anecdote, if you like, is I've had um, three experiences where I've actually realized now, um, in hindsight, where I actually was watching the soul lift out of people's bodies just before they passed. The first one was a very good friend of mine in the UK many years ago, and it was about a month before she left. Um, she had a really bad cancer, and she just glowed. 
she absolutely glowed and I was like wow you're so beautiful wow what what have you done um and the second time was a gentleman who was uh again a month before he passed and um and he glowed but it was really specifically around his head and it's like I sort of started to realize oh my goodness there's a correlation there I wonder if and then when another friend of mine who had a muscle wasting illness that went very quickly from uh, getting the first symptoms to passing took a year. And when she, I saw her and I saw this ring of light around her head, I went, ah, that's your soul as it's starting to leave your body and you'll be gone within the next four weeks. And she was. So that was pretty incredible. Like, wow. Mm. So all of those pictures that we see, those Christian pictures of these people with these halos, that's their soul potentially from my experience. And it may be that their soul is bigger than their body or it may be that they were uh, not long before their time to pass. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. during Qigong they also yeah, the acupuncturist and the chi, chi, uh, will tell you that the spirit sort of when it – yeah, when it's about to leave your body, it leaves out through the head. So that's why we actually always want to ground, 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 because if your spirit's, like, not really in the body anymore, that's it. You're going to be out of here pretty soon. Yeah, okay. so, yeah. yeah there we are. Well, thank you, Joy, very much for joining us, and thank you to our audience for joining us and um, I hope that like us you've been inspired by hearing about um, all the different the different adventures that um, Joy's been on and um, the passion she's had on and hopefully that's inspired each of us to do a bit more in terms of you know becoming plastic free and and uh, disengaging ourselves from the system that's that's um, yeah um, creating warfare on the earth and um, you know come out to Australia <laughs> interact with us <laughs> and we welcome you with open arms <laughs> thank you very much joy for joining us on the show oh thank you so much for having me it's been a pleasure <laughs> i love sharing my stories <laughs> i hope you've enjoyed listening that's <laughs> oh, good you had a single white female and you're having a crack at it i think that's really important you know you're a leader of inspirational for other other women Thank you. Thank you. Right. Next week. So next, next week, week we switch over to men's business. <laughs> Just been saying, what about men? What about men? <laughs> Sacred men's business, yeah. <laughs> so we're switching over to to um, a very male men's business. Uh, Cameron Monley will be our guest next week, and he has done the transition from, I understand, being a riot police squad member and leader to, to um, helping men develop their own soul connection and setting up a um, group called Infinite Connections. So we'll be talking to Cameron Monley to, next week on Thursday at the same time to find out more about his incredible journey too. So do join us again next week if you have time. And in the meantime, thank you very much and have a lovely week. And um, 
Yeah. Peace.